Hello, and welcome to the Marketing Times Analytics Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Safranis, and today I'm on with Jeff Greenfield. Jeff, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, hey, everyone. Uh, and Alex, thank you so much for having me here today. I'm Jeff Greenfield, uh, CEO of Provalytics, formerly of C3 Metrics, and formerly of, of a lot of other things that we may go into today, Alex. Very cool. So yeah, talking about your career, how did you get started in the business world and what was your journey? Yeah, you know, I did not have a linear path to get to where I am today and to and to move into the analytics space. It's it's definitely been an interesting one. I went to I went to college and I studied uh, biochemistry. I was a biochemistry major uh, and really enjoyed the sciences and made the decision early on that I wanted to become a chiropractor. And so I went to chiropractic college in Los Angeles. Uh, this is back in the, in the mid eighties. And when I was there, I was able to as well, uh, dig into one of my kind of childhood dreams as a, as a kid, I was, a you know, I got involved with magic and really loved it and did some performing in college. And when I moved to LA, things really took off. And I was able to perform and work at the Magic Castle. And I was not only going to school for time, but full time, but also working full time as a magician as well. Uh, and it was great because the type of magic I did was close up magic. It used my hands. And that, in my mind, jived really well with chiropractic, which was about using your hands. And it was it was a great time. And I finished up school there and moved back east uh, to the Massachusetts area. Uh, opened up a practice, uh, had a home office, and, and, and so I lived and worked in the same place, and it was it was great. And then in the mid '90s, I was involved in a car accident that damaged uh, a nerve in my arm that made it so that I couldn't take care of patients anymore, uh, and didn't really know what I wanted to do. I was I was kind of confused. You know, you go to school for a long time, and and you really are. You're good at something and you really love doing it because you're helping people. And then all of a sudden you can't do it anymore. So I was kind of, I was a little bit lost to be honest. And I decided that I needed to kind of like find myself and magic was something that I had done before. So I took off about two years and traveled the country uh, doing magic at uh, primarily colleges and a lot of businesses. So I was on the, if, if, Anyone listening was ever when when you went to college, if there were ever any activities that you went to that were came from your student fee, uh, those would go to pay someone like me to come on your campus. And it was through an organization called NACA that I was able to get exposed to all of the larger campuses around the country. And, and I had a blast doing that. This was around the late uh, late 90s. And when I started that, uh, I realized that the internet had just really taken off, especially in college students. You know, college students were really, really utilizing the internet in like 95, 96. And so I was like, you know, I need to get my own website. Now, back then, you know, very few people had websites. So I, I had no idea how to do this. So the the local newspaper was advertising that they were making websites. And I went to go meet with them. And they... Uh, they took down all the information. They said, come back in two weeks while we'll something to show you. I went back in two weeks and they had gotten me web hosting and they'd made 
like, you know, some, some designs, but that was it. They said to come back next week. And I did this throughout like the whole summer. And at the end of the summer, they, they, they told me that they couldn't figure it out, that they didn't know how to do it. And I'm like, listen, you don't understand, you know, when you got me web hosting and you bought that domain for me and my first domain was magic-magic.com. Um, I went and I bought ads in all of the college papers for these conferences that are starting next month. What am I supposed to do? And they said, listen, there's this program called Microsoft Front Page. It's like $699 at Staples. Uh, and, and it's supposed to be able to for you to do that. And, and if you can figure that out, if you could come back and let us know how to do it, because we can't figure it out. So I got in my car and I drove to Staples, which was like an hour away in Saugus, Massachusetts. I was living in New Hampshire at the time and I did something that I still to this day I've never done, which is I did every single tutorial that was available. And back then uh, it came on like a CD-ROM and it was a big, thick book. And by the end of that weekend of digging in on this, I actually had a website and what happened when I went on the road doing magic is that since I was the one who made it, I would update it every week and sometimes a couple times a week. And other performers started to notice and they said, hey, can you can you help me? Can you can you do something like this for me? And my line to them was always the same thing. Listen, I can help you do this, but this is not what I do. I'm on this journey to figure out what I'm going to end up doing next. And of course, you know, at the end of the story is uh, after about um, a year or so of doing consulting, I was able to get off the road and spend all my time at home uh, and not performing anymore, but then spending time uh, just uh, doing work on the internet, whether it was building websites or SEO type work and stuff like that. So I started, started along the journey there. And then as I got on more clients, people really wanted, the focus then became, you know, I've got to be at the top of the search engines. And back then it was, Go.com and AltaVista.com were the big ones. And uh, there really wasn't much that you could do besides build a bunch of what they call doorway pages. So I created one of the first uh, SaaS uh, search engine optimization companies out there called Position Solutions. And we built it out right at a time when the real estate really started moving to the internet in the early 2000s and, and it just took off. And it was cool because it utilized this kind of black hat, if you will, technology called search engine cloaking. And it was really neat because folks could just list their keywords and the platform would go out and buy domains. And so uh, for a lot of our clients, they would be like the top 20 results, the first two pages on any search engine but they would be all from different domains. Uh, yes, it is a little black hatish, but it worked great, of course, until the search engines figured it out. But by that point, I was on to something else. So I had this company and then I was figuring out, you know, hey, I think I want to get back into the entertainment business. I miss the fun of not necessarily being on stage, but just being part of it. It's, it's, it's you know, it's a cool business to be part of. I found out that, uh, there was an emerging practice called product placement and branded entertainment that was really, really cool. You know, the idea about being able to put products in TV and film. And so 
I went out to LA and started talking to some of the companies that were doing it and found that they were really good at getting it into a specific film or TV show, but they really didn't know how to talk the language of advertising or be able to talk to agencies or brands or put together reports. So I built out a company called First Approach that focused on uh, helping folks get into TV and film. And then that led me down the path of, of where clients would be in a TV show and it would be like, gosh, you know, it would be really great if I could get them to hold this much longer or if they could say this. And I would always say to clients, well, if you want to do that, you've got to, you've got to buy the whole show or, or create your own entertainment, which is what branded entertainment is. And so I then ended up with a couple of clients uh, having them produce an entire series of entertainment for them. One of them uh, was a large kind of faux reality TV show for an aesthetics company. Uh, and that was really exciting. And some of these gigs, and, and instead of this being like a, it was a company, but each one was a massive project. Uh, some of them taking a year to a year and a half. And what I found is after the fact, everyone was elated, everyone was excited, uh, but it was very difficult to measure the effectiveness of this stuff, especially from a digital perspective, as more and more digital was coming out. There weren't any hard metrics you could look at. And I realized that that business was not gonna be able to grow unless it was a way to accurately measure what was actually going on. And then that led me to the direction of analytics. I had a client, a publicly traded weight loss company, and uh, the CEO uh, wanted to scale his business. But every time they tried, uh, they would level out and their, and their CAC numbers, their, their cost to acquire a new customer would continue to rise. And so uh, I came in and, and said, okay, I think there's a way to figure this out. What, what ended up happening is that they had uh, lots of display partners all on a CPA basis, and they had all given them their pixels to fire on the conversion page. And so it was kind of a spray and pray technique where uh, AOL and some of these networks, you could see the impression numbers just go up like one day a week to a ridiculous number. They would put out a ton of cookies and then they would all claim that we would, you know, they would win the conversion. And I used to say that the problem that they had is that every customer that came in would have, you know, five or six different fathers or mothers. They would all claim credit for it. And that, that became the big problem. So I created a platform that enabled us to, to, to track impressions in real time, but then would also at the time of conversion would selectively decide who should get credit, who was actually in the last position, who was in the first position and who was kind of in the middle. And those folks, we would fire pixels for them to, to let them know, hey, they did a good, they did a good job. And that enabled uh, this, this weight loss company to scale dramatically. Uh, and then that became the genesis of C3 Metrics. And C3 Metrics was one of the first multi-touch attribution companies out there at the time, the only company that was around was a company called Clear Sailing, which most people don't even uh, know about these days. Clear Sailing, the CEO was, uh, his name was Adam, I think Goldberg. Adam was a former um, SEM uh, person at Google. And what he saw 
is that he saw that clients that were buying non-branded keywords would all of a sudden do really well. But, but there was a long tail. But the problem was is that Google Analytics would say that those keywords weren't working that well because they're more upper funnel. And, and GA was just last click back then. So he built out a company that utilized double click data. You had to use double click to use it. And it was only for search. It didn't work across any other channels. And luckily for me, the first client that I had for C3 Metrics, this weight loss client, was in every single channel. So I was forced to build this out to be able to accommodate all of those. And then as a result, I was able to build the company up and scale it to where we had clients, everyone from JP Morgan uh, to US Bank, a lot of financial services and a lot of pharma clients. And I exited C3 uh, in late 2019, right before the pandemic. Uh, you know, I'd been there for almost 12 years and hadn't done anything else and sat back and said, you know, what do I want to do? And, you know, I saw that there was, I really got fascinated by the small business world. Uh, when you think of, especially as the pandemic came on, you know, it was the small businesses that were really hurt, you know, the restaurants, the, the, um, the auto dealerships. And when you think of every local area, you know, the auto dealerships are, are, you know, They've got the biggest piece of, of real estate. And those are the folks who used to advertise a lot in TV and radio and in print. And when they shifted to digital, that's why we now see that all of our local print has started to downfall. So I built out a lead generation product uh, for the auto industry. And then um, I started having conversations with uh, a colleague of mine that was the CEO of a company called Wide Orbit. And um, they are all of local television. Uh, well over 6,000 stations. They've got about 90% market share. And that's the sell side. You know, those are the publishers, if you will. But they didn't have any buy side products. And so I agreed to come on board for about a year to a year and a half and build them out a buy side product and a buy side division, which I did. And I left there last year. And then I said, okay, what am I going to do now? <laughs> and it was kind of that same sort of thing about like when I got injured and I couldn't take care of patients anymore. So I started having conversations with friends of mine that, you know, uh, were in the industry, especially in the measurement space. And what I started to hear is that there was, a, you know, a lot of confusion, a lot of, a lot of issues that are going on. And this was right around the time when, you know, GA4 was coming about and, you know, the bell was ringing that people needed to switch over and that caused all sorts of interesting issues. And so I saw an opportunity there as this cookie apocalypse is, is near and, and very close, less than a year away at this point, as far as we know. Um, and, and what that means is, is it's gonna be a whole new world of measurement. So I built out a new company, Provalytics, to be able to uh, handle uh, where measurement's at today and where it's going in the future. So a truly a future-proofed uh, measurement solution, kind of the next generation of attribution. Uh, so that's that's kind of where I'm at right now. It's it's, it's a long, non-linear path, but, uh, you know, you take it as it comes type of thing. Yeah, and it's really interesting that you found the thread through all of your experiences. And I, one thing I noticed, which it makes sense that you would be a CEO is that you seem to be really good at decision-making 
and taking, seeing the options, seeing the opportunities, and then making a big bet and then uh, sticking to it. Um, would you say that that decision making is one of your key skills in the role that you have? A- absolutely. Um, you know, I think that's one of the biggest when you're building a company, you're you're moving uh, sometimes at light speed. So you have to make decisions. But one of the most important things is you also have to realize that you're going to make mistakes along the way. And as you have a team, you, you have to be the first to raise your hand and, and say, I, I screwed up. In fact, I, I would always say to my team, listen, we're, we're all we're, we're making hundreds of decisions a day. And, and we're all going to screw up. And the only thing that I ask for anyone that works with me is that as soon as they screw up, don't hide it. Just raise your hand because you can fix anything. Uh, and then the other thing that I'm really good at as well is risk taking. My, my wife always says that, that I, I, I don't have much fear when it comes to risk. It, and, and you definitely picked up on that. I'm, I'm definitely an all or nothing type person. Would you say that that is the attitude that somebody needs to succeed as an entrepreneur? Yes. Yes. You have to be all in. You have to, you know, it, you know, building a business is, is like having a successful relationship. You, you, can't, you can't be having a conversation with your partner or spouse and be thinking about something else. And, and you expect that the relationship's going to move on. And the same is true when you're building a business. Uh, when you're when you're working and when you're on, um, you, you have to be a hundred percent there. The hardest thing for me, and this is something that I've struggled with throughout the years, and I'm starting to get better at it, is being able to turn off. Uh, and and that's always been tough because I've always worked. Uh, you know, I, I work on vacation. I'm always thinking about business. And as you get older, you start to realize, hey, this is. You really have to be able to turn off and, and disconnect and even just taking, you know, 20 minutes a day to yourself to, you know, power down, if you will, and not think about anything uh, is incredibly important because, you know, when you're an entrepreneur, you're always thinking, I got to be doing something. I got to be working. I got to be doing something. But I, I just read this story about uh, this, this young guy who just won the Nobel Peace Prize in math. And um, he, 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 no one thought he was good at math throughout college. He, he, he didn't succeed in any of his classes. He didn't even show up, but, but, but he, he ended up excelling at it. He was great at it. But one of the takeaways that I got that, that I read about him is that he only works three hours a day because he is all in during those three hours uh, and fully committed. And then afterwards he's exhausted. Uh, I, what I see with a lot of entrepreneurs and, and, and I was guilty of this in the early days, is that you try to do everything. And what ends up happening is you try to do everything sometimes at once. And this concept of multitasking, it as you're scaling a business, will catch up with you very, very quickly because you can do one thing really well. You can do two, two things kind of okay, but it doesn't scale. And then eventually what happens is you're wearing too many hats and then everything is done kind of half-assed and and then that's when things start to fall apart so how would you recommend an entrepreneur go about signing with a, an, ex, an accelerator versus doing it on their own what would factor what factors would play into the decision i 
I think it really depends upon what the accelerator brings to the table in terms of resources and relationships, because as you're scaling a startup, those relationships become really important because you don't know what you're going to need three months from now. Uh, and the accelerators bring with them a whole network of people that if you put the time into it, uh, you know, you may not have to tap one of those resources until two or three years in, but then when you do, they're there for you. Uh, so I think the de deciding factor depends upon how large is your network, um, how how strong are they as well. Uh, those are, and, and then also what's been your experience thus far. Um, and, and so if I was young and I didn't have any previous experience and I didn't have much of a network, I would really look towards an accelerator because you can get all of those from that accelerator. Uh, but if you've been around the block for a while and and uh, you've got a network that you can tap that's got uh, everything you'll need from kind of you know the beginning till you scale, uh, then then you can you can kind of go at it on your own. You know, one of the advantages is once you've done something like this, you know, it, you're always going to make mistakes. But luckily. <laughs> Well, not always. Most of the time, you don't make the same mistake again. And that's that's the key is that it is that once you've done this a couple of times, you can accelerate the process so much faster because you've been here, you've done it, and you know what to look for. Like, you know, for example, like when choosing, um, you know, when it came to choosing things like payroll companies, you know, at C3 Metrics, I... I used a company that I had used years ago when I was a chiropractor called Paychecks. And the reason I use them is because in payroll, there's always screw ups. And the one thing you never want to screw up with is the payment of taxes and unemployment insurance. And I had an experience with them where they, they messed something up and there were some penalties and they paid everything and they took care of everything. So I had a trusting relationship there. But what I did find is that as we, that was great for being a chiropractor where, you know, I, I scaled relatively small and, and over time where you're adding on like one new person a, a month or every other month. But in a startup like C3 where, you know, some weeks I would be adding three or four new people, uh, paychecks was very slow. And what was happening is, is that it would be time for someone to get paid. Paychecks couldn't do the, the, the deposit in time, the, the direct deposit. And I would have to write a check. And some of these people were expecting direct deposit. I remember several occasions, I would go to the ATM and take out cash from my account. So they had money to pay for gas and rent. And I was like, okay, this is not gonna fly in a modern day. So I started looking around and researching them. And then I found this company called Gusto, gusto.com, which is phenomenal. It's so easy to get set up. It's so fast. They take care of everything. And so then after, after C3, I knew I didn't have to research it. So I don't need to put in the time to research a payroll company. I know exactly where to go in order to take care of that. And so that's kind of the advantage. Whereas if you've never done this before, you have no idea. Whereas an accelerator can provide you guidance in terms of what to do and provide a, provide a playbook of what, what's worked in the past. So you've started B2B companies. And do you have any entrepreneurship advice specifically for starting a business-to-business -business company? 
Yeah, you know, I think one of the one of the most important things is that you know, typically when you start a company, you're you're a you're a solo entrepreneur. You're by yourself. Uh, and I'll go back to what I said earlier that it's those relationships that are going to mean the most to you, uh, especially in B two B, because you're you're not trying to get a million or ten million customers. Uh, you're looking to get you know your first five and then 10 and then a hundred and and depending upon what you're 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 selling a hundred may be a huge company for you at that point and what happens is is that as you start to build this up and you're doing this all by yourself you need a place to keep track of everything that you're doing and especially the conversations that you're having and so you have to have uh, a crm um and 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 a lot of times I would recommend that if you're thinking of starting a company and you haven't gotten there yet, and you're just in the like the early organization uh, stage, you should have a CRM. In fact, I think any entrepreneur should always have a CRM and always keep it up to date. Uh, and I've used all of them. Back in the day, I used Sugar CRM because it was open source. It was awesome program, Salesforce, Zoho. And now there's all these new ones like monday.com and lots of them. But my favorite that I use is close.com. Uh, their product is, is phenomenal. They've got a great app and it also works incredibly well in the browser. It includes SMS and phone calls. But what I like is how seamlessly it ties into your email, which is the center of everything. It also has built into it drip email campaigns and all sorts of stats and everything you would need from a CRM. And it's perfect uh, as you start to scale. Once you get past like 20 employees, you, you, you know, depending upon what you, your needs are, uh, you can stick with it or you have to move on to something else. Uh, but I really like that one because you have to have a place where you can keep track of your relationships, where it's easy to take notes and it's all there, part of that customer record. And the nice thing is that it lists everything in chronological order. So you can go to any, any relationship that you have and see all of the email interactions that you've had, uh, any meetings that you've had, everything will be in there and, it, and it, it's, it's great. Uh, so uh, I think the number one thing is you've gotta have a CRM. Um, what? What is the relationship you have as a CEO with the customers of your business for a small business? And how does that change as the business grows? Yeah, in the beginning, you are, you're the face of your business. Uh, you could even say that, that your first, your first customers come in uh, because of that relationship, especially in B2B. Uh, because of your ability to uh, sell the sizzle, if you will, because in the beginning, you're you're not going to have a fully flushed out product. It just it never happened. It, there's just there's no way to build out a strong B two B product until you have at least the first ten or twenty customers, and that feedback that you get from those customers. In fact, you don't even want to call them customers. Those first couple of uh, of folks are actually partners uh, because they believe in you uh, and they believe that you're able to deliver and, and, and they're betting on the fact that the relationship that they have with you, you will make 
a thousand percent certain that you're going to deliver what you said you're going to deliver and that you'll also be able to find out what things they like about it, what things they don't like and what's missing from it. And that's probably the most important thing is what's missing from the product. And what that enables you to do with those first couple of customers in the beginning is it really helps you to cement your vision of what the product is going to be. Because in the beginning, you may be you may be building it all yourself and you have ideas, but even your best ideas, all of a sudden when uh, someone else comes in who hasn't been part of the ideation process and they look at it, their needs could be completely different. And that's part of where you start to figure out, okay, I do I want to build a product or a consulting company? Because what happens when you start to build a new business is you start to find people that say, hey, I could use one-tenth of that, but I need a bunch of other things over here. And in the early days, for some folks, because of the need for cash, which is always a huge necessity, you, you may bob and weave a little bit between that product and the consulting. And, and a lot of folks feel like that there's problems with that. I don't have any problems with it at all. Whatever it takes for you to survive and keep the business going, that's the only thing that matters in the early days. Because those early days are the hardest. If you can get over those and, and start to develop a vision of, of what the company is, what the product is, then your role starts to shift to where you start to recruit people into your company that can help you fulfill that vision. Uh, because you can't, do, you can't do everything. The manager at McDonald's cannot serve everyone, make the hamburgers and, and the French fries and the shakes at the same time, uh, maybe one person at a time, but not at scale. And to build a business, you have to scale it. And that's where your role starts to shift. And that's tough for a lot of solo entrepreneurs, especially if you've had a successful business and then all of a sudden on your own and now it's growing, which is what you want. And now you need help because all of a sudden what happens is you've got to trust people. And I, I was really bad at it in the early days, especially at C3. In the early days of C3, when there was only four employees, I wouldn't allow anyone to write an email, send an email until I read it first. Uh, so I would walk around and, 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 and someone would lift their hand up to let me know they had an email because all of the, every email that went out, even though it came from someone else, prior to that, all those emails were coming from me and they were now emailing people that I had shepherded through, people who were my early partners in this. And so I wanted to make sure that the tone and the voice were there. Uh, but what ends up happening is you get to the point where you realize that, well, their tone and voice, it will actually work better with some people than your own. <laughs> and that's when you start to realize, wow, you know, I need to kind of let go of these things. And so I was able to let go. And that's part of what happens with scaling is you just have to trust and you have to understand that people are going to mess up. And as long as you, uh, have people on board that are not afraid to tell you, hey, I, I need some help here. I need to fix this. Can you help me? Uh, then that's then then you'll be able to scale. But your job definitely shifts to where you're not going to be involved with customers day to day. You're going to be involved with recruiting. Uh, you're going to be more involved with product. And there'll be times where you get pulled over 
into one section of the business or another where problems, and it's not necessarily problems, but where growing pains start to come in. And then all of a sudden you have to take your, your, your CEO hat off and put on your, your, you know, your customer hat again, or put on your product hat or your recruiting hat, whatever it is, wherever their problems are. Uh, and then start to figure out how can you make sure that, that problems don't come up again. And, and really your job as CEO is to, is to find a way every day, start thinking about how you can replace yourself, all the jobs that you're doing. Uh, because that's the key is to eventually get to the point where you bring in managers where no one has to come to you for any issues, where you've got folks that are that know exactly what they're doing, they understand the whole process, and there's no need for them to come to you unless it's a, a really crazy problem. And then that allows you to kind of step back and spend the time on developing uh, the bigger vision for the company and the ability to scale. That makes a lot of sense. That's very interesting. Um, I want to ask about um, the value to a business uh, for an MMM model. So kind of moving into the actual business functions, uh, or at least the functions of models in a business, in a, maybe a marketing organization, what is the value of an MMM model? Well, I think the value of any measurement in an organization is to tie the 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 business KPIs and and to 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 some sort of action. And in the case of marketing mixed modeling, it's the ability to tie marketing events and marketing expenditures to specific KPIs and to eventually to revenue. Uh, so that's the, that's kind of the, the big value there. And, and, you know, for years, companies used MMM models and then, and then we had the birth of attribution that kind of came in and, and got everyone really excited because it addressed some of the, uh, I don't want to say deficiencies, but some of the limitations that there are in, you know, in an MMM model. Because when you think about MMN, it's it's really top down. It's big picture, and it's it's all about hey, give me all of the data, everything you have for all of last year, and I'm gonna go and evaluate it, and we're gonna determine incrementality, and we're gonna look at your total media portfolio. And there's some great things about that because there's no privacy concerns, which we're living in an era now with all sorts of privacy, because MMN typically looks at aggregated data sets, but the problem is, is that it's kind of a backwards evaluation. You're, you're taking last year's data, you're only able in a MMN model to look at just sales, just a sales response, and you're setting budgets. And you're saying, okay, last year you spent X in digital, you know, spend a little bit more, you know, 10% more in TV. And that's how it's adjusted. It's, it's primarily used for setting budgets based upon past performance. Uh, but in, in most companies, you know, you should do an MMM model every quarter to evaluate what's happened. Uh, but most companies that I've dealt with, uh, a lot of them, <laughs> we're relying on an MMM model that was five years old. 
because it's so much work to put one together. It takes so long to get the results back. And it's just, it's a lot, it's a huge project. Uh, Multi-touch attribution came in and said, hey, we're gonna do things from the bottom up. We're gonna start at the user level and aggregate up because in a digital world, every single touch point can be accounted for. And instead of just doing this once a year or once a quarter, we're gonna hook up our pipes, put up some tags, and we're gonna do this where it's always on in real time. And instead of just looking at sales, we're gonna look at all your conversions, even some of like your leading indicators, like in the farmer world, uh, a leading indicator is a visit to something they call a high value page, a page that's, that a paid media doesn't lead to, but someone only gets there if they're researching a certain drug or a condition. And they use that. So that's a, that's a leading indicator that you could correlate to revenue and scripts at some point. But with MTA, you could do that. You could do as many different conversions or KPIs as you want. But the problem that we ran into with MTA is that it was mainly digital, which is great because you know more money is going into digital than ever before. But even the direct-to-consumer companies, the new ones that are digital first, they're starting to realize that there's a point at which uh, they can't scale any further until they start to look at things like direct mail, maybe some radio or what we're now calling audio and then TV. And now we're calling OTT or CTV. Uh, and that's where MTA started to struggle is how do you bring these other channels in there? And so MMM has those advantages in this kind of privacy world, but really the future is kind of the, the merging, if you will, of the two of those. But for any organization, especially that's spending a lot of money in marketing, you've got to have a way to measure because you're working across all of these different channels. And let's say you had, you, you, you had $10 million in sales this month. Well, and I'm working across, let's say Google, Facebook, and Critio, and maybe I'm doing some CTV as well. And then maybe also, I'm doing stuff on the trade desk. So I have five different channels and I did $10 million in sales. If I go to all of those platforms and aggregate all the data, it'll probably say I did $50 million in sales. So there's no deduplication across platforms. MMM and MTA, their job is to deduplicate so that you actually have a true CPA at a channel, but also a very granular level. And this is what MTA did is that instead of just saying digital, MTA could get down to like a, in the search world, campaign ad group keyword match type ad level and tell you increase spend or decrease spend at that lower level. So it provided guidance to those channel managers in order, order to know where to move money around in order to hit their goals. Yeah, those are some very interesting technologies, and they've definitely changed the way that marketing functions. Um, I'm curious, when a company is deciding whether or not to use outside help when building complex data science models like MTA or MMM, how would you how would 
the company weigh the factors for do we hire data scientists or do we hire an agency? That's a great question. I think a lot of companies have have struggled with that, especially as a scale. Uh, when I first started C3 Metrics back in 2008, when we would go into a company and we would ask to speak to their analytics team, it was usually the IT guy that they brought in. Because, you know, back then there was one person who took care of all of the computers at the, at the office and was also in charge of the web properties and, and anything to do with ads and things like that. Over time, we've seen that shift where especially larger companies are realizing that uh, their own data is so valuable. And in order to truly understand it, they have to build out teams of internal resources because the data requirements don't just stop with marketing. Uh, you know, they now extend into things like HR, like the data requirements for HR these days is, is ridiculous, especially when you try to figure out all of these new questions because of the pandemic and work from home. There's so much data there that a company can learn from in order to help better manage their team and improve their overall happiness score. And so smaller companies will tend to use an outside company. Now, what smaller companies tend to like, and we've seen this trend over the years, is they like productized things. They like products because products are less intimidating than dealing with a consultancy or an agency where it's all personalized. So for smaller companies, I would always recommend start searching around, do a little Google searching and start looking around for uh, products that are already out there that can help you. Product Hunt is a great source for that. I'm always on Product Hunt looking for new tools uh, and stuff like that. Uh, but as you scale and you get bigger, one of the things that happens with uh, data science models uh, like MTA or even MMM is that if you hire an agency or consultancy and you get back the results or you have a product company and you've got the results, Who's going to interpret them? And because because getting results without turning them into action is a complete waste of investment. And so what you have to have is you have to have someone that is essentially in charge of and spearheading those data efforts who can then translate them into results for each of the people that are supposed to make changes and then also be there to explain it to them. Now you could say that consultants can do that. Yes, they can, they can explain things, but making certain that people actually do the changes and holding those people accountable, they, they can't do that and they don't do that. And so that's why we've seen over the last 15 years as companies start to scale and now you start to see all you got to do is search on LinkedIn for jobs where you're looking for analytics directors and you're seeing all these listings join our analytics team. You know, back in 2010, there were no analytics teams. You know, I remember one client of ours that we had Carbonite. There was there was there was nobody. In fact, C3 Metrics came in and there was there was uh, we were we were 
the marketing team is the one that dealt with the analytics product and they didn't know it because there was no analytics team. And then I remember there was one gentleman there, Matt, and, and the, there was a change in the marketing department and they didn't know what to do with C3 with the data. And he said, I'll take it on. And so then he became our point of contact and I saw him incredibly take his team of one and build it to a team of 18 over the course of three years. And he did an incredible job of, of building out consensus in that organization to where they understood the true value of data. In fact, he reported directly to the CFO and the CFO wouldn't put out any reports or any information to the CEO until he talked to the analytics team. And that's really where analytics belongs is part of that CFO organization versus the marketing organization. Because at the CFO level, that's where budgets get set. That's where decisions are made. And that's really where you want to be in an organization because that's where you can affect the most change. So we talked about um, some of the technologies that a business will use, how they'll build it. What do you think the future of marketing attribution looks like? Yeah, it doesn't look like the past, without a doubt. I mean, when, when, when I first started C3 Metrics in 2008, we were actually able to grab the entire digital path. We had tags that were up on Facebook. Facebook took our tags. Amazon, amazon.com took our tags. We had everything. And so we were actually able to, to really map that entire path. So everything was deterministic. It, it was a lot of data, but truly incredible. And then all of a sudden, uh, I'll, I'll never forget it because it, there, there were a couple of us that were involved with Facebook in the early days. There was us at C3, Convertro, and Adometry. And there was a day when it was announced that Google was, was buying Adometry. And then three hours later, it was announced that AOL had acquired Convertro. And then the next week, Facebook said, we're, 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 we're going to take down all the multi-touch attribution tags. Because they originally saw it as, wow, MTA is independent. And they're like this independent voice. And then when two of the larger independent voices were purchased and acquired by two of their bigger competitors, they said, yeah, we're not playing in this anymore. So then all of a sudden, Facebook went from being 100% deterministic to now being probabilistic. And that was okay for a couple of years because we had so much data on Facebook. We knew how it reacted with other channels and we could add in those probabilistic, if you will, markers in our model. But then all of a sudden, new walled gardens started to come up. Uh, I think the biggest first one was YouTube uh, and Google moved away from having tags. We had tags that were on uh, YouTube. Anytime someone would do a buy, so if you were seeing an ad, our tags would be there for that. And then what, what Google found is that 
so much of the traffic has shifted from a desktop environment to a mobile environment that they wanted to do away with tags because they had so many tags that were there. And what they found is that even the fastest tags, the more there were, they were slowing things down. And that was impacting users, uh, um, you know, user experience. And so what they did at that point is they built out something called Ads Data Hub, which was an aggregated view, if you will, of data. So that instead of being able to get user level data, we would only be able to get aggregated data. And it was only, it was, it was limited by geo so that you could never identify a, a, a specific user. And they followed the HIPAA guidelines so that if they ever moved into healthcare, um, this ads data hub would be compliant with it. And so we were the first and the only multi-touch attribution company utilizing ads data hub. But then what happened is very rapidly, other platforms started to come up, the TikToks of the world, and who else knows what else is gonna come out there. And then there started to become where we've got more holes than we have deterministic data. So now things are very probabilistic in the MTA world. And it used to be with things like CTV, it was great because you could get a file from the CTV provider, the publisher of every household IP address that was exposed to an ad. And then the way you could tell effectiveness and add it into a user path is we would then add it that that file into C3 and it would look up IP addresses and it would add that exposure right into the user path, which was incredible. But now what's happened is, yes, those devices are in the household IP. So that path, that that data set hasn't changed. What has changed is the ability to collect proper IP addresses because with iOS now, a lot of people are utilizing that relay. So if you log into your stats now, you'll start to see more and more people from the middle of America and, and, and different IP addresses that don't relate to that user are being utilized. So the ability to match back CTV and OTT to uh, visitors on a website, it, it, it doesn't work the way it used to. And then now what's gonna happen is sometime next year, it was supposed to happen this year, but they pushed it off a year, is the upcoming cookie apocalypse. Now, this may not happen. There may be some governmental intervention that stops it from happening, but the trains left the station and it's gonna happen eventually uh, and where there will be no more third-party cookies. So the, abil the ability to stitch together that user path is gonna be gone. Now everyone talks about, well, what about cookie-less tracking methods? Yeah, there are cookie-less tracking methods, but the walled gardens are gonna see this as an end run. And remember, one of the major walled gardens is Google and they control one of the major browsers. So any, any circumvention around in order to track users is gonna be uh, quickly squashed by the browsers. And I wouldn't be surprised 
if in the next couple of years, because when you read all of the privacy regulations, IP addresses are considered to be PII data. Uh, and so one of the things that I think we're gonna start to see is I think we're gonna start to see hiding of IP addresses by the browsers. And this is shocking to me of someone who built out a technology in 2008 and because I always saw the browsers as partners working with us together. I never saw them as kind of having their own agenda, um, but they certainly do have their own agenda and it's at odds uh, with multi-touch attribution as it exists today. So I think the because of all those holes and because now that user path is going to be more probabilistic than deterministic, the future of marketing attribution is more of an aggregated view. And it's more of a view where we're looking at the merging, if you will, or the Venn diagram. If you were to take MTA and MMM and merge them together, the Venn diagram of it would look like a continuous, always on platform that utilizes not only attribution, so very granular, but also incrementality. This is one of the things attribution didn't have is there was no incrementality in attribution like there is in MMM. But where you're able to look at multiple conversions, multiple KPIs, you're not just limited to digital. You can look at the total media portfolio, even things like print, uh, and not have any privacy concerns at all. That's really the future of marketing attribution. And that's that's actually what I just described is, is, is what we've built over at Provolytics is this kind of merging of both worlds. Because what we end up with with that is we end up with the ability to uh, accurately measure the effectiveness and the efficacy of all current channels and any future channel. Because when you think about it, if something new came out, the TikToks of tomorrow come out and you're going to buy something there, you're going to be able to figure out what you bought. There's a price that you paid for it. There's a day that you got it on. There's an impression count or engagement count or something. And that can be layered in to this type of model. So we're talking about that can handle all current and future channels something that looks at not only the direct impact, and this is really, really important. This is one of the things that Marketing Mix does really well that attribution did not, which is, is that when you're buying ads, there's that immediate impact. But what about the person who sees the ad and it paints a picture in their mind, but they don't do anything? And then they see another one and it paints a bigger picture and it takes like on the sixth impression, they finally did something. So that's this indirect impact of marketing. And that's something that's called ad stock. There's a long explanation on Wikipedia about ad stock, but it really is about this kind of long-term lagged impact. And we know that it also happens and it, ad stock came about because of TV and print. But we know also that that impact is there in digital. And it actually goes back to some of the early studies that Yahoo did. Now I know everyone today looks at Yahoo 
like they're a joke. But Yahoo in the day was was the king. And Yahoo had this great advantage because not only were they this major display network, not only did they have the most visited page, but they also owned and controlled a search engine. And so there was a study that was done with Quaker Oats. Quaker Oats did this homepage takeover of Yahoo. And back in the day, that was the thing. Like you do a homepage takeover for a day of Yahoo, everyone in like the world is going to know about you. So they did a homepage takeover that talked about a healthy breakfast and healthy breakfast cereal. And of course you clicked on it and it took you to the Quaker Oats site. And so what happened that day is Quaker Oats saw a ton of traffic come to their site. And of course the next day, there wasn't as much traffic, but it didn't drop off entirely. It didn't go back down to the level it went. It took time for that to get back down to the previous level. And what they also saw is that searches for healthy breakfast were dramatically up that day, but they stayed up for about 10 days till they finally got back down to that prior level. And this, this coincides with a lot of the brand research that's out there that says you get kind of a one and a half times uh, return from that branding because it lifts the overall number of people that are aware and it increases the size of your sales funnel, which is what we all want. Uh, so that's really what we're talking about here is, is that ad stock and being able to understand that when I buy an ad today, what is the impact? I want to know what the impact is today and tomorrow. But if there's an impact a month later, I really, really want to know about that. And uh, that's something that Marketing Mix does really well. And that's all part of Provolytics. So expanding on marketing attribution, how can AI change the way marketing attribution functions and the value that it can bring? Well, AI is a is a game changer because when it comes to attribution, really what you're interested in is unlike MMM, where you want to know budgets, uh, you know, for what you should spend in a big budget over the next year or the next quarter. Really what I'm interested in is, hey, here's where things are today. What is the absolute, what should I do with my money? How should I move it around? Where, or I have an extra $100,000 to spend this month. Where's the best place? Where am I gonna get the biggest bang for my buck to spend these dollars? Uh, AI and the combination of that, obviously with machine learning, allows us, instead of running like one simulation or to run hundreds of thousands of simulations, we can do all of these at the same time simultaneously. Uh, and actually at, at uh, Provolytics, we use a technique called uh, um, SUR, seemingly unrelated regressions. And that allows us to run all of this stuff all at the same time. And AI allows us to do that at a speed at which we've never been able to do before. And that's what allows us today to take aggregated data non-user level data and model it and be able to get down to a, a level where a channel manager then knows how to allocate their spend 
if I'm a Google search person or if I'm a PLA person, I'll know which PLAs are working uh, and which ones are not and where to increase spend and where to decrease spend in order to hit my KPIs and my goals. So that's, that's the beauty about AI. One of the other biggest and most important things uh, that's also come as well is with AI and the ability to move so much faster, creative is really the name of the game. At the end of the day, it, you know, everyone thinks, you know, you find the winning creative. And I find that so many agencies and so many brands, they stick with the same creative. And it's, it's a huge mistake. If you've got a creative that's working on Facebook and it's got a blue background, there are a million different combinations of blue that look just like that. And you need to start testing them and you need to start doing this all um, at scale. And there's some great companies out there that are doing an amazing job with that. The first one that comes to mind is Marpipe. Uh, they've got the ability where you give them your ad and they go in and create thousands of variations of not only fonts, but colors and pictures. And then they automatically add these to Facebook. And obviously because there's all these unique IDs and things. These can all be tracked as well in any measurement platform that you have, whether it's Provolytics or anything else. And they can come back and let you know which combination works and, and it learns as well. So once it finds that something is working, then it keeps iterating upon that because there is no perfect creative in today's world uh, because people are, are so overexposed you always have to be kind of bobbing and weaving. This marketing game is like a boxing match and, and you, you got to make it through each round. And in order to do that, you got to move around a lot. So earlier in the episode, I asked about the, you, you, the beginning of your career when the internet was still coming to prominence and it was particularly popular among college students. I want to ask about the current technology landscape and what are the opportunities that you see right now for the future that remind you of the opportunities you saw when the internet was just coming to prominence? As technology has become so prevalent, you know, I remember the early days uh, and going back to what we talked about earlier when I was uh, doing NACA and touring colleges and I remember I had a, a Palm Pilot and I would use it to hook up to a phone line to dial up to be able to get my email. And then eventually I had a Palm Pilot that had a little wand that you would put up that could get like a 1G signal so I could get my email. Back in those days, like no one had email. I was like one of the first people. And then all of a sudden everybody had email. And now everybody has email everybody has a smartphone technology is so involved with our lives and not only that but everyone is carrying around this this uh if you will global knowledge in your pocket i mean it's really an incredible time that we live in we have everything and every 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 book that's ever been written every philosopher's thought um, every fact that we want, 
you know, if I want to know what the, you know, the temperature is right now in Positano, Italy, I can Google it and, and have it on my fingertips. And so I think we live in a, in a time where uh, technology is, is become like this pivot point in our life. And, and I see that in a lot of businesses. When, when, I, when I go in and I look at companies, I'm amazed at the number of tools that they are utilizing to run their business. And when SaaS first came out and SaaS products were first available, it was amazing because it was, it, you, you didn't have to go through this whole installation process. It was incredible. But now some of these companies have got like 20 or 30 different tools that they're using. Uh, so I think there's an opportunity for some sort of auditing and I hate to say suggest another tool, but I think there's an opportunity for an auditing technology or consultancy, if you will, that comes in and helps companies decide, uh, are they getting the value from this uh, that they should? And maybe that's a role that analytics should play because I really believe that every tool you use in your business should have, uh, you know, there should be a cost benefit that, where you look at that. You see a lot of ad agencies today, they, uh, and, and a lot of companies do this, they, um, especially services oriented companies, they have all their, every team member, even the CEO uh, will track their time to, to figure out what client they're working on. Because a lot of companies have been shocked to find out that clients that they've had that were paying them lots of money Sometimes they're losing millions of dollars a year on it, but they didn't know that till they started tracking time. And I think the same is true of a lot of the tools. A lot of the tools just become part of the culture, but they're not actually uh, uh, giving any benefit. So I think that there's an opportunity there. I also think when I look at the landscape right now, in terms of measurement, we're we're at this 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 amazing uh, um, point in time. We have all these things happening at once. Privacy is front and center. And whether it's the cookie apocalypse, the iOS changes, or who knows what else is coming, we've reached a point in the world where uh, tracking users at an individual level, it is, that's not where the future is headed. So that's the first thing that's happened. And then the second thing along with that, and as a result of that, we have this shift from Google Analytics to GA4. And this is a monumental shift because Google Analytics is, is the most used marketing analytics platform out there. And it is, you know, whether it's right or wrong, it's what most marketing departments use to make their decisions or at least guide them. I, I hope that most folks listening to this know that brand search and affiliates don't drive their business, even though that's what GA says, but there's a lot of folks who don't know that. But one of the things that folks are, are dealing with right now is that you, know, you log into GA and there's that banner across that says, as of July, there won't be any more, won't be able to put any new data in here. And so now there's this massive transition where we've got to transition companies over 
to GA4. And that's great, but it's like people are now having to look at both systems because they're both running at the same time because as of next July, uh, your historical data is still going to be there. So you're going to have to look at GA, not GA4. And there's now people are starting to see there's differences between the two. And let me tell you, as someone who's been in this space for a long time, whenever people start to see discrepancies in the numbers, uh, they start to lose faith in them. And so that is creating a, an opportunity right now in the technology landscape for any, um, any players to come in and start to provide a, a solution that works. Uh, one of the things that we know that is not going away, hopefully, is first-party data. So if I have a website, it's the data that I collect on that website, especially for people that are logged in or known customers. So for e-commerce, where you know 75% of your business is returning customers, these are people you have on an email list, you have their shipping address, you have everything about them. And you know every time they come to the website because usually they're logged in. So that first party data becomes very, very valuable. Uh, and there's an opportunity, there's a huge uptick and in, in, uh, companies uh, getting up and running with, with uh, CDPs so that they can aggregate that data. And most importantly, not only aggregate on it, but also activate on it. I also see though that as we're starting to move from this user level data to aggregated data, one of the big holes that I see is that people are not feeding the data back to the Googles and the Facebooks of the world and the LinkedIns of the world, especially in the B2B space, that they should. Uh, most people have tags up and so when a lead comes in, that goes into Google and Google rings the cash register and says, all right, job well done. Good job, Google engine. Let's keep it going. And that's how most companies do it. When they have a lead, that's it because then sales takes over. Well, there's a whole offline conversion process that you can actually easily enable with your CRM and with Zapier to just make it down and dirty and simple. So you don't even have to build out the API. It's already there for you to do. So that when that lead becomes a marketing qualified lead, obviously the, you know, someone who's marketing qualified is probably worth at least 10 times more than uh, just a regular lead. And then when they become sales qualified, they're worth a lot more than that. And then when you actually close them, they're worth a lot more. Even if that journey is months long, Every time you change the stage in your CRM, you can set it so it automatically sends that information back to Google and back to Facebook. And there is a beta for LinkedIn to say, hey, that lead that you sent me before, I said it's worth the one, it's now worth the 10 or it's worth a hundred. And what will happen over time is that Google will realize, hey, there's a lot of one leads, but they really like these leads that are hundreds. And over time, that'll feed the Googles and the Facebooks of the world. And it will tell them 
how to optimize. And you will start to see automatically your lead quality will go up. It's like overnight, the leads that start to come in from your paid efforts, all of a sudden your, your close rate is so much better. And it's not that your sales team is doing a better job. It's just that your, your, your number one salesperson, the one at the top of the funnel, the Googles and the Facebooks and the LinkedIn's of the world, you're, you're actually giving them feedback so that they can actually find you leads that are more like the ones that you actually close. So there's an opportunity there because uh, as I talk to folks in the B2B space, and hell, even in the B2C space, if you have a subscription business, you should be feedbacking and sending that information on to Google and to Facebook every time someone subscribes, every single month. Uh, you should be updating them. Hell, you should be updating them every day or every hour is someone resubscribes because the more frequent the information, the smarter they're going to get, and you'll see your costs start to decrease in terms of marketing. Moving on to leadership lessons. Do you have any leadership lessons to share with the audience? Yeah, I think, I think the most important thing is uh, to, you have to develop empathy and understanding for people on your team. Uh, and even though, and we talked about this earlier, that as an entrepreneur, especially as a solo entrepreneur, you're doing all these jobs and, and you, you, you want to make certain that people are doing them and there's trust issues that we all have. We have to understand that in order for our team to scale and do well, they've got to have a life. <laughs> they've got to have a life outside of work, even though you may not, they've got to have a life. And so you have to be able to know when to when to throttle up, but also when to throttle back and trust that they're going to do a really good job. Um, and the way you do that is to really understand them and, and really, you know, some leaders, they don't really want to care about their people. I don't want to be friends with my team. Like, yeah, maybe you don't want to be friends with them, but you want to know who they are, what they're about. And you also want to know what really matters most to them, uh, because it may be that this person is only going to be part of your team for six months. And then at that point, you guys part ways and they go on and do bigger and better things. But during that six months, you they may do incredible work for you. So one of the things that you want to look at is when you're hiring people and you're recruiting people, don't look at it like you're looking for someone to be with you for the next couple of years because they may not. And even, even if they tell you they're going to be, circumstances change in life. You know, look and see what this person can do for you today. And then it's your job as a leader that once they've accomplished a goal with you, you then wanna continue to challenge them so that they can continue to do great things. And that's your job as a leader is that as soon as you see someone has done really well in one role and they're killing it, move them up, uh, give them more responsibility. They can handle more. This is how you retain people is that as they continue to evolve with their skills, you need to get further out of the way, 
step back and do more vision type stuff and hand over the reins of your uh, daily stuff to the folks that are able. And, and that's tough for a lot of folks, but that's the way that you are able to retain people and keep them on. And speaking of that work-life balance, a lot of what I've found to work for me is working at a job that is really fulfilling. And I want to ask if you have any advice for how somebody should find their passion in life in terms of work. Yeah, you know, some people find it in the actual work that they do um, or the or the overall goal or vision of the company. Um, but I think the way you find your, your passion at work is you want to make sure that you work for people that you think are passionate and that you think are caring. Because if you work for someone that is a really good leader, it's going to impact everything you do. You're going to feel so much better about it. And that, and and we've talked about this uh, before, Alex, about um, about how the 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 leader at the top sets the tone for the entire company. And if the tone is off, uh, everyone feels it. And even if it's work that you're passionate about, it's gonna, you're gonna hate it. You're, you're never gonna have a good day there. And, and all of a sudden you're, you're, you're gonna start looking for other things. But when the, the tone is great at the top and, and the vision is clear, uh, even if some of the busy work you don't like and you're not passionate about it, you're passionate about the team. And, and the, the, I have a personal example of that with my daughter. Uh, my daughter for years, uh, and, and my daughter works in social media. She's a social media manager for paid. And she worked for years in the auto industry where she worked for a large dealer group. And, and all of her jobs after that were where CEOs were men. And, um, you know, men and women, we have different ways that we do things. That's just a fact. And you know, she did her job. She loved it. And then she got recruited several months ago uh, by this B2B agency in Oakland called LQ Digital. And it's a female-led agency. And immediately, she noticed a difference with the tone at the company, the vision at the company, the way that her boss talked to her her interactions with everyone at the company. And I, I gotta tell you, Alex, she's doing the exact same work that she did when she was working at the auto dealer group and at the other companies. It, it's exactly the same work, but she is so passionate about it now and loves all the work that she does, where it, it's tough for her, even though she's not an entrepreneur, it's tough for her to stop working each day because she not only loves what she does, but she loves the people that she works with and she loves the vision and just the leadership. And that's made all of the difference for her. And I, I think that's really what it is. When you have someone that you work for that is an incredible leader that, that will, you know, will, will take a bullet for you. That's what you want. You want someone who's going to be leading the charge, uh, not someone 
who's going to be behind yelling at you, telling you to work harder. You, you'll do you'll do anything for that person. And that's that to me is where you find passion, because at the end of the day, even though we're all doing this work, even if we're remote, we're interacting with people on Zoom calls or video calls or we get together. And it's those interactions that that fuel that passion. And so I, I think at the end of the day, it starts at the top. Final question. How can we hire better to make stronger teams? You only get stronger teams when you have diverse teams. You have to have diversity, especially as an entrepreneur, because when you're starting a business, and even when you have a large business, it's all about solving problems. And I experienced this firsthand at C3 Metrics. You know, we had, uh, we were bootstrapped, didn't have a lot of money, couldn't even afford to run ads on LinkedIn. So I ran ads on Craigslist because they were cheaper and hired people and paid them by the hour. And, you know, I made up ads. I copied ads from the internet that I saw for different roles. And we got to about 10 employees and I looked around and I said, everyone here is white and straight. And that's what I realized that we all hire people that are like ourselves. That's why larger companies, they get a whole recruiting team that is typically at any large company, you'll see that the recruiting team is diverse because people tend to go towards something that they know. And so one of my struggles at the time there was like, we need some female input because if, if it's all straight white guys, 10 of us, and we have a problem to solve, they're all gonna get to the same answer that I would get to. I need, I need different perspectives that will stretch my thinking as a leader. And that's why you need diversity. So I, I, I struggled for several months trying to get uh, to recruit women into the company. And I didn't have any luck until, <laughs> this is a crazy story. My wife and I, so we live here in New Hampshire and right over the New Hampshire border is Kittery, Maine. And if anyone listening has ever been there, you'll go to the Kittery outlet malls where there's all these outlets. And my wife said she had bought stuff from Lululemon before, uh, you know, online. She's like, let's go to the Lululemon out- outlet. I'm curious to see what they have there. So we go in there and of course it's busy as can be. It's all women working there and everyone's smiling and everyone's happy. And I'm like, okay, Lululemon has figured out how to recruit women. And it's not just because uh, they're selling to women. There's gotta be another reason. So I went online when I got back from Kittery and I looked and I started searching and looking at Lululemon ads. And I realized that the language that they use, the way they describe the jobs uh, and they describe what you were going to be doing was completely different than anything else I'd ever seen. And that's when I had the epiphany. I realized that these job descriptions were probably written by women. And all of the job descriptions that I had ever used before that are on the internet have been around for years and were all written by men. 
And so all I did is I took my job descriptions and I started using some of the la same language about how they felt about the job, using the word love a lot, because if you're gonna go work someplace, you don't wanna be passionate, you gotta you got love it as well too. And immediately after I started running the new version of the ad, half the applicants were women. It, it was like overnight. And just by doing that, I was able to get a more diverse culture where uh, it turned out that, uh, you know, we had a lot of women, a lot of people that weren't straight. We had a diversity of backgrounds uh, and opinions so that when we started sitting down as a group to solve problems, I would start hearing answers that I would have never come up with on my own. And that's, that's where you get uh, real problem solving and real growth as an entrepreneur. When you start listening to people and they start coming up with solutions that you would never come up with, that's, that's an exciting time. And that's, that's why you have to have diversity and really focus on hiring people that are not like yourself because you already have yourself. And if you're an entrepreneur, you're gonna do the job of, of probably 20 people. So you got 20 of you, you don't need more of you. You need people that are completely different. I want to thank you, Jeff, for coming on. This has been an excellent discussion. I learned so much. My pleasure, Alex. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Awesome. And thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll talk to you soon.